Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an MCRIT podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to follow up on the primer episode I did on the AMAX4 protocol for crashing anaphylaxis and asthma. This was a protocol invented by Ben McKenzie, an emergency physician whose son tragically died from the mismanagement of a crashing anaphylaxis and asthma case. Um, the plan was to do the initial episode to get all of the basics out there so that I could bring Ben onto the podcast and discuss uh, a deeper dive, uh, intricacies, things that are, I think, more subtle. And I think that's what we did. And I really, really love this episode. I have so much admiration for Ben, and I think you will too after hearing his story and the work he has done for these critically ill patients. So let's get right to the show. But of course, you know, you're not going to get right to the show because what you're listening to is a free episode. This one's the full episode. I'm not going to cut you off on this one, but you do have to listen to my plea, my real desire for your patients to be as safe as possible when they experience critical illness in your hospital. And the way to do that is for you to have the most cutting edge information on resuscitation and acute critical care. Now you're getting this full episode for free, but there's a bunch of MCRIT episodes that are curtailed after seven or eight minutes, meaning you're only getting a tiny portion of the goodness that will save your patients' lives, that will keep you up to date on the most cutting edge literature in resuscitation and acute critical care. So if you don't wanna hear these messages again, but more importantly, if you want to protect your patients, feel good about your resuscitative skills, then you should join MCRIT. All you have to do is go to mcrit.org slash join. You'll pay a minimal fee compared to the other CME out there. And then your hospital could reimburse you or you could write it off on your taxes. So give yourself a little critical care gift. Go to mcrit.org slash join and become a member. All right, let's get to the show. All right, Ben, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the, the show. We already discussed your brilliant AMAX4 protocol. And I wanted to bring you on to have some further discussions. Why don't you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Scott, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm an emergency physician in Australia, and I've practiced mixed pediatric and adult emergency medicine for my whole career, and which is now 20 years, and I really love it. And I'm passionate about teaching and the standards uh, that we hold ourselves to in emergency medicine, and and it's been a great career to be to go through and journey through. But it's really hard for me now, as you, you did such a great talk on introducing AMAX four and the algorithm that addresses anaphylaxis and asthma hypoxic arrests, and and that all came about, or my focus came about that because my son Max died from anaphylaxis and we just had our two-year anniversary of Max dying last weekend and we spent the weekend with his friends who Max was 15 and his friends were 14 and 15 As and these boys are, there's eight of them, they're an incredible bunch of boys. They had to lower Max's coffin into, into the ground and they did that with courage. And each year now we get together with them and their families and plant some trees. But And those days actually feel okay, but the, every other day I wake up with the, the trauma of, of being too late to save Max. I got to the ED where Max was at 
18 minutes or so and he he didn't have a rhythm and if I had have got there 15 minutes earlier then all my colleagues did my did the job that they were supposed to do and my specialty didn't let me max and a family down then he would still be here I'm, I'm so sorry for what you've gone through it's a yeah. true, true travesty <laughs> how is it that you were able to be evolved enough to not seek retribution, but instead channel this horrible event to try to do good in the world. Max's death has to have some meaning. He can't die for no reason. There's an empty chair at the dinner table. His two sisters miss their big brother desperately. And if we are able to stop just one family from going through the trauma that we've gone through and missing one of their kids, then that will be a good thing. And it's really, as healthcare professionals, we always tell ourselves, oh, it'll never happen to us. Like that happened to them and we find reasons why it won't happen to us because they were made the wrong decision or whatever reason, but actually it can happen to us. And when it does, what do you do? Do, do? do you be angry or do you try and fix it? I guess different people go different ways and everyone's grief's different, but the way it, it, by doing this and stopping other people from going through it, then the death won't be in vain. And, and what you've done is quite impressive. There was a hole in the knowledge base of emergency medicine and critical care that someone surely should have filled way before you. Yeah, like, uh, this is the question. Is it a hole? Like, it's not, it wasn't a hole for me. Uh, and I'm sure for you, you're faced with someone who's the handover from EMS is, this is asthma anaphylaxis and they're unconscious being, and possibly having a hypoxic seizure. And well, what do you do? Do you, like, I, I think... I guess what this is all about is trying to articulate what the standard is and what the approach is for all of us. So we're all on the same page. If I turn up in New York or you turn up in Melbourne, that we just know exactly that we're, it doesn't matter what standard we are. Like we, we might be, you might be great and I might be okay. And, but we, we know what the, the, the goal is and that is to, to oxygenate someone. With severe bronchospasm. I, I think the reason it is a whole is because it diverges from the things that we have pounded into people. We've pounded into people when you're in a stressful situation, you fall back on our heuristic knowledge of, okay, you get three attempts at intubation, right? You could bag as, as long as you need to between attempts, as long as the patient is capable of being bagged. And all of the nuance falls away until someone like you says, no, that heuristic knowledge is wrong in this circumstance. And then you build a new set of heuristics, which is it's what you're doing here. It's, you're creating a new set of reflexive activities. The problem is that the, the standard heuristics fail in this circumstance. Um, now, part of the failure, and I, I emphasize this in the podcast, I'm curious to hear your vision of it, is I, I think if they were monitoring end tidal on their BVM breaths, it would have been readily apparent that they were not actually ventilating, even from the very beginning. Tell me what your thoughts are on that, Ben. I 
emailed my PhD supervisor and I gave them a copy of your talk and I said that that was a point well made because I think that's right. And we were having the discussion about wouldn't it just be higher? I said, I think it's yeah, just about having a waveform at all is what you're looking for. And yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a very well made point and I will... Absolutely, take that and uh, and add it to my next version of the lecture. I, I think people are like, oh no, oxygen saturation's enough. But what people don't realize is you lose sight of whether the sat waveform is good or not. You know, that takes a lot of mental space to be able to um, really appreciate. Yeah, the number's saying like 90, but there's no real waveform there. I don't, yeah, but it's probably okay. And that probably okay does so much damage, so much horror. Uh, I couldn't agree right more. Just on that point, and, and again, specifically for this cohort of patients, these patients are often having high doses of adrenaline, they're vasoconstricted, or they're shocked and they've got poor peripheral perfusion, like you're spot on. It doesn't matter what the number says, the patient's unconscious in front of you. So that's if they're awake and talking to you, it wouldn't matter. That's one of the things I loved about your protocol is the entryway into it is simple. If the patient came in with anaphylaxis or asthma and they're unconscious, forget all the rest. That's it. You need to establish That's an airway it. at that point. Stop messing about with, oh, maybe they're okay, maybe they're not. Just intubate that patient. There's no downside. There's only upside. And the alternative is disaster. And you made that point so well. Yeah, I think we... This is another point that's worth addressing in that errors of omission versus errors of commission, we treat them differently in medicine. So if you do something and it goes wrong, then that's, we feel like do no harm and that's more likely to be bad, whereas actually in this situation, doing nothing is creating harm. And we're less likely to be hard on ourselves about that and advocate for a standard, but it's all about doing something. <laughs> Like you said, there's no downside in this situation. We came to the point of you're going to empirically administer epinephrine. And you and I think, I don't even know if we have a real difference, but we did teach differently how one would administer it in this crashing patient. And you didn't emphasize it a bunch in the main lecture. There was just a, a different video for how to mix up epinephrine. And having experienced uh, people trying to do what seems like simple instructions that I've given for uh, over a decade now and seeing the, in the literature the disasters that ensue because people can't follow simple directions, I've given up in critical situations to mixing epi. Tell me your thoughts on that, Ben. Uh, totally. An adult patient, 50 marks, 100 marks of epi, I totally agree with you. I guess what I want to do is, because I've always worked in pediatrics and adults, it's increasingly siloed. I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but this group of young people stand, both young adults and school-age kids. 50 marks for an eight-year-old is probably okay, but the pediatric people, they like to go dose per kilo, and so that's why that's emphasized in that way in my lecture. That makes yeah. so much more sense now. So it, it's, they probably would be okay still doing a half a cc, but they're going to have that stop point in their mind that's not going to let them do it. So you had that's to give right. them something to let them bridge that gap. Totally, totally. And yeah, it does, it crosses both pediatrics and adults. And we don't want that group to miss out. If you're 16 or 15, you can go either way, but it's the same medicine. And in fact, it's the same medicine for any school age kid because they're all just little adults. Although my pediatric colleagues, will, I don't think they disagree. Once you get to school, it's all pretty similar. 
what else did I get wrong on the on the lecture, Ben, or things that you uh, think we should discuss? I, I think so. Once you've got the tube in, like that's just an, a no-brainer. Like that, giving epi and putting the tube in is. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. But and but the, the issue is that once you've done that. It, in a lot of other patients, once you've got the tube in, things get better, right? That's one thing under control. Yeah, that's good. We've got the airway. We've got some ABC sorted. But in this case, it, you've got to keep going and you've got to keep managing breathing, which is uh, really difficult. And so this tension between – you touched on it really well – I really want to impart on people that you have to deliver some breath. It might feel like a brick. You need to deliver some tidal volume. And how you do that with huge pips, 100, 120, how you do that and make sure that there's a pause and allow expiration without hyperinflating and causing burrow trauma is a challenge when you've got high adrenaline epi levels yourself, right? So how do you teach people to say that you have to press hard if you're using a, a bag, but not big? Right. That's that, exactly <laughs> right. You said that perfectly. Yeah. How, how do you get someone to do that? And I had to take over care from finished Max's surgical airway and took over ventilation because it was clear that the person who was doing that wasn't actually delivering any tidal volume and and i was probably i was the way i did it was deliver a breath and then let go of the bag and then squeeze max's chest from the sides from his armpits in towards the midline and that worked well but he ended up having bilateral pneumothoraces so did i do that i don't know was it when he was getting cpr and is it the cpr and an overinflated lungs uh, that are being ventilated that causes that? I, I, I don't think we know. Uh, do you have any views on what the etiology of these arrested asthma, anaphylaxis, bronchospasm patients get their pneumothoraces from? Classically, in the era of when asthma was untreated, when we didn't have the same medication regimens we did, it was, oh, you might as well just put in bilateral chest tubes now because they're all going to get pneumothoraces. That was what uh, we were taught by our attendings when I was training because they were still in the era of a thousand cc breaths. And when they bagged the patient, because ventilators weren't readily available in the ED, so you'd wind up bagging for 20 minutes, you'd watch the breaths they were given and they would take that BVM and crumple it into a little ball with each breath. And that was just a routine. And they'd be doing that on these asthma patients. And of course they'd get bilateral pneumothoraces because they're giving enormous tidal volumes to uh, lungs that are already hyperinflated. I, I think with low tidal volume before CPR is administered, you can get away and avoid, like I, I have not seen iatrogenic pneumothoraces in these circumstances with low tidal volumes a single time. But then we were having a discussion before we started, and Ben, you brought up the fantastic point that didn't even occur to me, because it's been so long since I've seen really bad asthma. It just doesn't happen anymore in the neighborhoods I'm in. But if they have gotten to the point where they're super hyperinflated and you're putting in big breaths or even maybe little breaths on top of it and doing CPR, that also seems a setup for pneumothorax. And you actually, we walked through that, you pointed it out very nicely that, yeah, giving low tidal volumes shouldn't cause pneumothoraces even in the course of CPR, but giving 
tidal volume to already hyperinflated lungs that are not given time to exhale with CPR. Yeah, I'm with you, Ben. That yeah. seems like a nidus for badness. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, th- I think, yeah, you're right. We, we've got so good at doing low tidal volumes and tolerating high pips, but focusing on low plateau pressures or keeping plateau pressures under control and permissive hypercapnia. We've done that so well that even when you look at the literature, the pneumothoracy rate is very low in patients who have a controlled deterioration and get intubated electively and go to ICU with asthma. But it's these ones that are uncontrolled that that really get it now in, in this day and age. I guess it's just something to be mindful of if you've got to the point where you haven't able to do the AMAX-4 or, or get things under control before this complete decompensation and CPR, you need to know your high risk for pneumothoraces. If you don't have VV ECMO on standby or going in, then that might be something that helps or that might be a secondary cause of failure to get better. Absolutely. Now, you and I have had very friendly back and forth, because I think we both agree on this, about what would be the best way to go, the ventilator or the BVM. And there is no best way to go. I think we're both in agreement that if you are really savvy to the ventilator, you, you could absolutely use that. But if you're not, you shouldn't try to go that route. It's probably a pathway to disaster, and you should just stick with the BVM. Is that a fair statement of our beliefs here, Ben? Yeah, t- totally. We're in furious agreement. We're, we're just talking about I guess my lecture was focused on people who might be feeling out of their depth and cognitively overloaded and they're under pressure. They just need a simple intervention rather than adding another element like a ventilator. Your point of your way around a ventilator and you can take off the the Pmax and make that really high because like you said before we started, the alveoli aren't seeing that pressure. That'd be a much safer way to go. It gets complicated because then they complicate the BVMs because one of the anesthesiologists who deals with kids is, yeah, but you better remember to lock out that pop-off valve or you're going to be totally hosed. And so even the BVM, now you still have to be aware. And now in the adult world, I don't remember the last time I've seen a pop-off valve, but you bridging both of the types of uh, patient population, how often in Australia are pop-off valves on the bags. It's some of the feed. I've got some fantastic feedback about the website and about the simulation. But one of the guys from Sydney was, "Hey, you realise that Simulab BVM you've got has got a pop-off valve?" <laughs> and I think in the video it's actually open. Maybe uh, I was so focused on just the timing of things, <laughs> it was not in my. But yeah, they exist still in in Australia. The with pop-off valves, and yeah, how it's not doesn't work in this situation because you need to be going over 50. It's guaranteed that the pips are going to be over 50, 100%. Yep, so yep. you'd be mindful. I think that should, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is to that. That's a, a system problem. But you need to know that if the pop-off valve is popping open, that you've got to close it or sticky tape it or, yep. or, or something. Yep. End title would also be beneficial there because you'd know right away at least that the breasts aren't doing what you think they're supposed to be doing. I would love to see BVMs have pressure gauges rather than pop-off valves. And I think that should just be a safety measure that is just uniform across emergency medicine and critical care. That would be so cool. How come you haven't invented that? I have. That's I have. Yeah, it's coming out this year. I want to make this a product pitch, but we have the MCRIP BVMs coming out. 
And one of the other safety measures it has, it actually has two ridges on either end of the BVM that if you just squeeze those together, it's a 500 cc breath. So then that would be the answer if you're using a BVM is to squeeze it as hard as you want, but only such that only those two ridges are being collapsed and not the rest of the BVM. But more to come on that. And there's no pop-off valve on it, hopefully. And I think it'll be good. But yeah, okay, so we're on the same page on that. Was there anything else that we should discuss about where we go in different directions? I don't don't think so. I think, look, yeah, it's just good critical care, isn't it? It's establishing the airway, managing some complex ventilation, which this is what we're here for. This is the, the type of medicine that we love. And anaphylaxis is just this fantastic disease process where you have to manage ABC simultaneously. And I think... You've said it, hopefully, my talk comes across okay, and none of it's new. I'm playing the devil's advocate here because I'm with you. I completely agree with you on this one, but I want to take the other side because I know there are people who heard my lecture and have heard your lecture who are thinking this, and they might be too scared to say it, but this, I want to put this out there. So uh, this is not me. This is, I'm just a, an ordinary emergency physician, which is, all right, you want me to take one shot in intubation and then now I have to cut the neck. But I've never cut the neck before. I don't feel comfortable cutting the neck. I feel more comfortable trying to intubate a second time. I I feel I am more likely to succeed intubating a second time than cutting the neck. There's no way I'm going to get this neck cut. I've never done it. I don't know how to do it. Can't I, in that circumstance, try a second attempt at intubation? And what do you have to say to that, Ben? No, you cannot. Because it's a really serious thing. So this is my son that you're talking about, right? And he's dead because, for a whole bunch of reasons, but mainly because the emergency physicians didn't do, they they didn't even try to intubate at at the beginning because they didn't, for whatever reason. In fact, in the post-review meeting, they said they thought intubation would kill Max. So there's something going on there. And look, what what have you got to lose? If you can lance an abscess on someone's buttock with a scalpel, you can do a surgical airway. It is such a, technically, it is much easier than intubating. It's something that a lay person could really do. I don't know why we're so scared of it. The morbidity is low. It is just a core emergency medicine Procedure, I appreciate it. it may be more difficult in someone who's little, who's preschool, or who has a neck, sorry, some sort of cancer that's making the neck disorders, but it is an easy procedure. And what I want to impress upon people in this particular scenario is that, sure, you might not have seen a whole lot of oropharyngeal edema on the way down with the laryngoscope, but laryngeal edema can be present, and it, you might still be able to see the cords, but it's pretty tight there. And this goes when I intubate a croup patient, you really do need to go one or two sizes of ETT down to get it through that hole because it's edematous. It doesn't look too bad. I can see it. I can see the cords, but it's tight there. And it's the same in, in this case. Why can't you get the bougie through? Why did you fail? And probably because you're a good intubator and it was hard. You should be happy with yourself that you are a good intubator and say it didn't work and off you go and for the surgical airway because this is more critical than VFRS 
where you can do CPR for five minutes and DCR someone with sats of 100, that these guys have got sats that are already low and their brain's already about to die. So it's more time critical than VFRS. Now, Ben, you wanted to talk about the different types of anaphylaxis. Let's just talk about anaphylaxis and the different types. So in Australia, it's taught poorly. It is, we're told that all anaphylaxis is the same, but it's not. So let's just talk about food allergy. There's a huge incidence of asthma and atopia with people who are allergic to food. So they all have asthma. You need lower levels. Uh, there's a great paper by Simon Brown in Australia where you need lower levels of inflammatory mediators to trigger bronchospasm and get hypoxia. It's a great study. And there's some great cohorts of anaphylaxis deaths like from Bock and Samson in the US, Richard Pumphrey in the UK, where food anaphylaxis, they all die of bronchospasm, all of them. Or with the occasional one, which just dies of airway asphyxiation because of orangeal edema. So that means that if you... And what's the highest cohort that we see in ED of anaphylaxis? It's food allergy. The anaesthetic the drugs, the EMS team see the insect allergy patients, and we see the food ones because it's slightly slower onset. So the, the tree nuts, peanuts, eggs, seafood... That they're the ones that kill people. And almost everyone who dies, the, the vast majority of people who die from anaphylaxis know that they have an allergy and have had an accident. So there we go. We've got this cohort of food allergy patients. That's what they look like. But if they arrest with you, they're almost, they all have bronchospasm or airway problem, plus or minus low blood pressure, which might be secondary or primary. But they, so that's a really key point, right? So... That's how asthma pre- presents now to, to EDs. Insects, anaphylaxis, they all have low blood pressure unless you have asthma, but there's less insect allergies, people with asthma, because it doesn't, it's not part of that atopic spectrum. Same with drugs. Now, if you get a high enough dose of drug, you will get bronchospasm in almost anyone. So if you look at the National Audit Project 6 from the UK, auditing every anaphylaxis for 12 months in in the UK, 20% presented as bronchospasm and 50% of all of the drug anaphylaxis had bronchospasm as a significant component. Yes, drugs and insects have low blood pressure or vascular collapse as a a manifestation, but 50% of drug anaphylaxis have have bronchospasm involved. And don't forget, these guys are in theatre already with an ETT, a lot of them. Some of them might have an LMA, but somebody's ready to swap it out. And so it's really that there are some really specific differences between triggers. That is such a key point. And I would go further and say, because I've seen the various types, and yes, the drug anaphylaxis definitely has a bronchospastic component. It is nothing like the food allergies, bronchospasm, because they wind up giving albuterol. And so it goes down on the record as they had a bronchospastic component. They probably did. They probably had some wheezing, but the life-threatening bronchospasm I've only seen in the food allergy world. It's Yeah. Yeah. And it's because of that predisposition that all those mast cells in the lungs, they're ready to be triggered and they have asthma and it's a huge cofactor. So the allergists talk about cofactors in, in the Severity of and asthma is a huge cofactor. Yep. 
if a patient has a presumed bronchospastic arrest, then ACLS is going to fail us utterly. And I, I know this is totally. a point that you wanted to really get across, Ben. So here's your soapbox, man. Tell, tell everyone. <laughs> sure. When you have classical VF, you have stats of 100% and you can keep the circulation going with some CPR while you sort out some electricity. But that is our default. That's because that's a common cause of arrest. That's where we all learn and go to as a position of comfort when we're doing ACLS. But this group, it does not apply. There is, number one, you cannot use a BVM because the pressures are just too high. You may get away with it for a short period of time. The entitled CO2 is a, is a good idea, but that airway is swelling while you're waiting. And so you are getting more and more into trouble with each passing block of 10 seconds. And it is completely pointless going down that VF to BVM route because it will not save this person's life. And it's such a key point and it's certainly something that I'm advocating for with the Australian Resuscitation Council and I think it it needs to be taken to that next level in terms of resuscitation under special circumstances at, at an international level. I would go so far as to say, because we've moved to CAB now in ACLS, yeah. but this is one where I, I don't even think the A should be simultaneous with the C. I, I think compressions are going to hinder the one thing that's life-saving in this circumstance. And since it is just one attempted intubation and then a crike, I don't mind waiting on those compressions to get that airway in because you got to give your best possible shot at it. It's game over with, without an ET tube during these cardiac arrests. 100%. I don't want to say anything more because that's spot on. And yeah. <laughs> The tube has to go in, and if the CPR is interfering with that, then then that's not right. That's you're hindering the the, the life saving definitive care. Ben, this is a, a shift away from the super critical end of it, but it is something that has annoyed me with the anaphylaxis treatment that I've witnessed, and I liken it to the treatment of status epilepticus, which is the classic and guideline based teaching is still give a benzo, wait a while, give another benzo, wait a while, give an anti epileptic, wait. 10 to 20 minutes, and then finally do what the patient needed in the first place. And you could be 40 minutes into a poor brain perfusion before what happens. And it feels like that on these sick anaphylaxis patients as well. Not the crashing ones who are unconscious or in arrest. I think people get it that IM is not going to cut it. But sometimes patients will come in super sick. They'll have severe dyspnea. They might have vascular collapse, and they'll still try one to two doses of IM before moving to what we know has far more immediate effects. If you had a magic wand, Ben, what would be your cutoff to say, forget it, just go IV right away? We know you were saying that for unconscious or arrest, and I completely agree. But I think we got to pull even further into the spectrum. What do you think? A hundred percent. We know that young people, because we're talking about young people here, I, I totally appreciate that older people get anaphylaxis and their problem is that they've got concomitant comorbidities and heart disease, so it's harder to survive a severe insult. But talking about young people with intact physiology, that compensates until the very end. And so how do you know when you're getting close to decompensation? If you're hypoxic, you're in trouble. If the sets are in the 80s, you're in trouble. If you're 
blood pressure is, and I guess it's about the speed of deterioration. So if it's deteriorating fast, you need to get on it. And so that's when IV adrenaline is indicated. Or if the deterioration has already got to a point where there's grossly disturbed physiology, there's no time for IM adrenaline. And there's some great studies like the EpiPen studies. IM adrenaline takes five to eight minutes to get a peak effect. And so if you're happy to wait that eight minutes and you think nothing bad's going to happen, that's okay. But if you need help now, then that's IV and go for it. And there's plenty of people advocating that when there's a cannula in, it should be IV adrenaline only because you start the infusion, maybe a bolus to start off with while the infusion's coming and, and start because then you can really titrate that infusion rather than getting this sort of erratic pharmacokinetics with IM adrenaline. Yeah. What yeah. you just said is my feelings as well, is that we should just give some push dose epi and then start an epi drip on these patients. Now, in your PhD work, I don't know if you've come across it, or maybe you're the person to actually figure this out, but what would be an equivalent dose of an epi infusion to what they're getting from, let's say, the 500 micrograms of IM epi? Because ostensibly that's divided over a five to 10 minute absorption time. Is there the same bioavailability IM type? You might know this okay. stuff. Yeah, I can talk you through it. So yeah, tell me. I've had instant onset, three and a half minute half-life, and you can work out uh, what dose you need over a period of time equivalent to the intramuscular route. Intramuscular route, five to eight minutes onset. There's this weird thing that happens within healthy patients because it's only ever been done in healthy subjects, not in people with actual anaphylaxis, that there's a five to eight minute peak, and then it comes right down. And then it goes up again at about 30 minutes. There's a second peak, and we don't know whether that's rebound effects of endogenous adrenaline or just secondary absorption, but this is intramuscular confirmed doses. The danger periods for recurrence when the epi wears off is at 20 minutes because that's when your first iron peak, the big peak, happens. And then there's this smaller peak that sort of goes and ends in an hour. And But some of them don't get that, so it's really... And if you've inadvertently given it subcutaneous, then you're not going to get a peak at all. There's some nuance. And we know that a big needle, big long needle into the thigh with uh, a high pressure auto injector is better than your little healthcare needle and with some someone just gently pushing it in that's got a lower peak. Intramuscular has got this whole variability in its pharmacokinetics. To answer your question, that 500 marks that we give in a standard dose intramuscular really comes in two bunches over an hour and yeah good luck working it out uh, <laughs> it's 500 mics over an hour and then divide that by 60 so it's 10 marks per minute or something like that i don't know that 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 feels so pretty good right much. so if you started yeah. your infusion at 10 to 20 mics you'd be doing at least as well as the i am ostensibly it, is that fair totally right. yeah and then you would have already had yeah. that push dose load. And I wouldn't probably be giving the 50 to 100 micrograms to someone who's not crashing if they were just bad. I'd probably stick with the 10 to 20 push dose epi standard dose yeah. and, and see what happens with that. Ben, is there anything we should have spoken about that we have not spoken about thus far? There's a lot of content there. So I think if people can take something away from it, but most importantly, just save that person's life. It's all you have someone's life in the palm of your hands when and it's all about speed and practice and proficiency. So I really, uh, I wish everyone well. And yeah, if they can save someone's life, it'd be a, a wonderful thing that you can do for somebody. 
Ben, you do an amazing work. I, I have full expectation of more stuff to come from you that's going to save lives. And I just really admire what you've done. I, I don't know many people that have the strength and fortitude to have done what you've done. A round of applause to you, my friend. Thanks, Scott. What an amazing guy, right? All right, so before we go, quick, uh, if you need physician coaching or clinician coaching, come to mcrit.org slash coach, um, and you can deal with burnout or improving your productivity and performance. mcrit.org slash coach. Scott Weingart for the MCRIT Podcast saying bye-bye.